although I was attracted to to the idea of a worker state and communism, in my mind here was always this idea that, listen, if you take that down this route, it ends up in totalitarianism. Hello and welcome to Confessions. This is the podcast where I talk to interesting, well-known people uh, and try and drill down into their sort of core beliefs, understand a bit of their backstory and uh, work out what makes them tick. And with me today is the excellent Alan Johnson, a union man, postman, would-be pop star. And one of the things that I love about him is a sort of semi-professional lover of London, which is uh, which we share, by the way. And of course, politician. Uh, welcome. Welcome. Thank very you, nice to have you. Great to be very here. Very ha- nice to have you on. Now, I'm faced with a bit of conundrum here because one of the things we normally do on this podcast is say, you know, tell me a bit about where you come from and all of that sort of stuff. And then uh, and then sort of try and work out where people's sort of big political beliefs, as it were, grow out of it. But your backstory is yeah, like well, pretty well known, well, the books, isn't it? The book sold a lot, but not all of your listeners would have heard it, Charles. No, 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 no I understand. Sadly, I understand. Is, uh, <laughs> they're not into the Jeffrey Archer kind of stakes yet, uh, so, so it's probably still worth it. I think it's a part of your appeal, Alan, and you are, you're one of those people that everybody, I'm sparing your blushes, but you're one of those people that everybody likes a lot. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you probably yeah. have your enemies, but, uh, but, but, and I think part of that is your sort of slightly your openness and your slightly self-deprecating qualities. Yeah, but I would say in politics, when I was in government uh, for 11 years as a minister, I didn't use my backstory. In fact, lots of my special advisors would be saying, why don't you say more about your your backstory? But to me, it was like, you know, me and my sister didn't go through those kind of hard times in the slums of North Kensington to give me a Labour Party backstory. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I kind yeah, of yeah, hated yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk a bit about this. Cause so, so you grew up in, well, I mean, you grew up in North Kensington, but, I mean, people sort of associate that with quite posh... Uh, Notting Hill. You know, Hill, Notting exactly, Hill and exactly, all of that sort yeah, of stuff. But yeah. th- that's not what it's like. This well, is... you know London better than, better than most people. So when the book was published in 2013, I had to go to some lengths to say, look, this generic term for this area of West London that's become known as Notting Hill... We never lived in Notting Hill. We lived in Kensal Town, North Kensington, the town, we called it. And it was a very poor part of London. Now, sadly, people know about North Kensington now because of Grenfell. And they also know, this wasn't measured at the time, but they also know that now, not when I was born in 1950, now a boy born in North Kensington, as I was, will on average die 16 years earlier than a boy born in South Kensington. So one London borough with that those obscene uh, health inequality statistics that the epidemiologists can now measure. So always a very poor area. And in a sense, I was trying to recapture North Kensington from from Notting Hill. People say North Kensington is posh now. No, it never was posh and it's not posh now. And there's still, you know, large areas of deprivation. Isn't it extraordinary when you look at some of those... I've got a map on my wall at home about a, 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 a... poverty map of London where the yeah. streets were measured and this is like I think it's the sort this of back Booth. end of the, William Booth yes. yeah yeah back and end this of the 19th is, century back end of the 19th yeah. century and you look at those streets today and the the streets that were poor then 
roughly speaking, a poor today. Exactly. It's yeah. extraordinary. The, the change, has, there's no yeah, great yeah. change in, in no, things. No, I did a radio documentary on education focused on one school in Camberwell, South East London, and we looked at those booth maps where people went to every house and interviewed the people in them and then coloured them if they were very, very poor, black. And they coloured those streets black. And yeah. I asked to have a look at what North Kensington was like there, and that was black. Yeah. And kind of if you did a booth map today, it would still be yeah. black in that's, the sense of more relative, more relative poverty than actual. I see Boris Johnson is living there or was living in Campbell before he got the removal vans <laughs> in and went to Downing Street. Um, so, so that's kind of becoming gentrified, if you like. But, but you know, gentrification. If people think, oh, well, that's now not a poor area anymore. The gentrification usually is very gradual. Uh, and you've got large swathes of people who are very poor living there. So, um, tell tell us about tell us about your your story. So, you you were born there. Your dad disappeared quite early on. Yeah, when I was eight, uh, he, which we were very pleased about because he used to beat my mother up. Oh, right, I mean, yeah. this kind of stuff about you know the early fifties was a time of peaceful innocence. If, if I was doing anything in that book that was political and I was just telling my story, but if there was any political message, it's that those were brutal times. They were brutal if you didn't fit in. They were brutal if you were different. And so you know, domestic violence went on all around us. And because we were living in these terrible uh, slums that were condemned as unfit for human habitation in the 30s, we were still there in the 50s, and people were living in those conditions in Manchester and Glasgow and Liverpool and big cities and small towns. Terrible housing problems that Dickens would have recognised. But you could hear what was going on because basically you were one family to a room and kind of two families on each floor. Um, and the domestic violence was terrible. The violence at night, chucking out time from the KPH pub in Labrick Grove or all the others, a pub on every corner. Terrible violence. There was, of course... Every teacher was licensed to beat you. And as I tell the story in my book at primary school, we had a teacher who didn't cane you there. They caned the boys on their hands. They hit the girls on their legs with rulers. We had a teacher who didn't cane you there. He caned you there, which was really, really... That's on the wrist. Yeah, on the wrist. Sorry, yeah. Um, it's a you know, bit of a sadist, as uh, many found their way into the teaching profession at the time of corporal punishment. Uh, Kelso Cochran, black West Indian carpenter, murdered on the corner of my street in 1959. No one ever been arrested. It was this is the, Teddy Boys type. It was of the Stephen Lawrence of its time. Yeah, surrounded by five Teddy Boys, knifed. There was all that. There were. I mean, if you were gay, I mean, look at Alan Turing. You know, war hero, chemically castrated by the state. And me and my sister used to see the signs in shop windows as we went to school in the morning. Room to let, no dogs, no Irish, no blacks. Yeah, that, and and if you were disabled or spastic, as you used to, they used to be called. Uh, you know, that was it. You sort of hide yourself away for the rest of your life. So it's very brutal, and a lot of progress has been made in, in all kinds of areas uh, since since the fifties. So so I try and explain that, and we, you know, it's pretty. When my father, so my father used to beat my mother up when he came home, drunk. He was a pub pianist, and he ran off with a barmaid in uh, nineteen fifty eight. And me and my sister always say, my sister was a couple of years older than me, happiest days, day of our life. 
But for my mother, it was the start of a whole new set of problems because single mothers then, if they if they were a single mother and they hadn't been married, they were castigated. You know, the child was illegitimate. Yeah. Imagine a human being yeah. being illegitimate. And yeah. if your husband had left you, it was your fault. You'd been deserted. You know, somehow it was the woman's fault. Plus, you, you had to take a court case to get any maintenance. There was no child support agency. Any benefits, as they were, went in the wallet, not the purse. So when he disappeared, the benefit, as it was, family allowance, went with him. So my mother recognised this wasn't the end of the hard times. It was the start of a whole new set of problems. So I'm about to give you an opportunity to give you a free kick at people like me because... Um, one of the things that people like me say, not about the 50s necessarily, but we look at today and with all the benefit, all advantages and advances and so forth, there's still a yearning for community. Mm. And people look back to sort of working class closeness, I guess, as an epitome mm. of a sort of uh, a community mm. uh, existence. Now, what you're saying is that there's a sort of like absurdly rose-tinted attitude oh, towards community. Absurdly rose Yes, there was. I mean, we were human beings. Of course you form. I mean, my mother, bless her, always insisted, who kind of could quote the Ten Commandments off by heart and was very keen to to live by and never went to church. No, Uh, You know, we if the gas went and we were searching for a shilling to put in the gas meter, she found one, she would kiss it and turn her eyes to to heaven, to the ceiling, you know, the flies on the ceiling and, and, uh, and thank God for it. So it's very religious in 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 that way, um, and she used to get my sister to run errands for an elderly woman who lived on the top of the next house to us. She was in her seventies, Mrs. Sudbury. One day, Mrs. Sudbury gave her threepence, and my sister told my mum she got this threepence. My mother marched her straight back to give the threepence back. I mean, there was that kind of stuff in in communities. But there was so much barbarism. And as I say, we didn't fit in. My mum was from Liverpool and she came to London when she was 18 to work in a naffy. And uh, she got rid of her Liverpool accent very quickly, not because she was ashamed of it, but because she didn't fit in. It wasn't cosmopolitan London in those days, a long way from it. So, and, you know, there was a lot of brutality that was hidden. Not just the domestic violence, all kinds of things went on with kids, you know, and flashes and all the kind of stuff that now there's a lot of fuss around and there's a lot of uh, attention on. But back then it was just part of normal life and police weren't interested. One of the great tragedies of your life was was your mum passing away when you were quite young. Mm. And then how your sister, who heroically Mm. uh, managed to find a way of of keeping Keeping you two together. Yeah. Well, my mother had this heart condition called mitral stenosis, and it was uh, her mother had died age 42, had had 11 children by the age of 38, died when she was 42. My mother, as the eldest girl in that family, then had to take on those responsibilities to a pretty dictatorial and bombastic father, my grandfather. And she escaped all of that and came to London. She had this heart condition. Her, Her mother had died at 42. Her grandmother had died at 42. My mother was always convinced there was some curse of the female line that meant she would die when she was 42. And just as she turned 42 in June 1963, she was asked to have this groundbreaking operation at Hammersmith Hospital to replace her mitral valve. It had only been done a couple of times in America and over here. My mum immediately said no. 
My sister was with her. She took my sister, who she'd become increasingly dependent on, Linda. And my mum left the room. My sister ran after her saying, don't you want to live to see your grandkids? Because the consultant had said, you've got about five years to live unless you have this operation. But my mum had just turned 42. She's been asked to have this groundbreaking, serious operation. She was frightened. And in the end, she was so ill that she went into hospital in November 63, had the operation in March 64, and she didn't survive the operation. So I was 13. Linda was... 15 turning 16 and she'd left school Linda at 15 to train to be a nursery nurse she told me just keep quiet don't tell anyone I mean it's amazing actually no one knew about our plight in the sense that you know there wasn't anyone to go to which we were quite pleased about because my sister said if the author she said tell no one at school tell no one about it says someone will come the authorities will come and split us up in the end because they were pulling our house down, which is about where Grenfell Tower is now. We had a house in Warmer Road, a second house we were in in North Kensington. They were pulling it down and they sent a letter addressed to my mother two weeks after she died, offering her the council house that my mum had always dreamed of, which was the only escape from those slums. So my sister, they offered us a council house in Welling Garden City. My sister marched round to the authorities and said, my mum's dead, but me and my brother will have this. And the council guy said, don't be silly. You know, your, your kids, the age of majority then was 21, not 18. So we were well below it. I'll send someone round. And into our life came this great social worker, Mr. Pepper. And Mr. Pepper had planned, he'd found foster parents for me at my school, <coughs> near my school in Chelsea. He'd got Linda a place in Dr. Bernardo's at Barking, where she could continue her training and live in. And he kind of said all this, expecting a round of applause. Instead of that, my sister tore into him, said, you are not going to split us up. Mr. Pepper said, you can't be on your own. She said, we've been on our own for years, as we had, because my mum was in and out of hospital. And in the end, Mr. Pepper went away, a lovely two-bedroom masonette, indoor toilet and bath, at first we'd ever known, number 11 pit house on the Wilberforce estate in Battersea, which meant we had to go south of the Thames, but we got over that trauma uh, in the end. <laughs> it's a better place, it's better uh, south of the and Thames. And me and my sister always say that one decision by someone in authority, Mr Pepper, meant our lives were very different. I mean, they you were, haven't you hadn't got many positive male role models before. Not really, no. Life, really. There was Mr Cox, who was the f- uh, father of a good friend of mine, uh, Tony Cox, who seemed to be everything my father wasn't. He had an allotment. He was an engineer on London Underground. He, you know, used to cook the breakfast. Uh, so not many male role models, but Mr. And Mr. Pepper didn't yeah. try to be. I mean, he came round. The condition of us getting his flat, he was going to be round every five minutes, which he was at first. And then he was round once a month and then once every couple of months because he could see that things had gone OK. If they hadn't, if I'd have been shooting heroin in a back street, not there was much heroin around then. He'd have lost his job. He'd have been castigated. You know, he took a huge gamble and listened to us. He didn't have much. These days, that wouldn't happen, would it? It wouldn't happen these days. Social workers, I'm the patron of a charity called Family Rights Group, which looks to avoid kids going into care to be with other family members, to be raised by other families. Because amazingly, the system doesn't, you know, there are grandparents saying, we'll look after this child. And dear Mr. Pepper, my sister who's lived in Australia since the early 80s, tracked him down. Still al- well, last year he was still alive, age 95. And uh, yeah, a bit of a hero to us is Mr. Pepper. 
I can't even begin to understand how this shapes you emotionally and forms your character. I mean, it. Well, let's get one thing clear, Giles. You know, people say I had a hard life. I didn't have a hard life. My mother had a very, very hard no, life. No, no, you did have a hard life. And my no, sister. No, you did have a hard life. Well, they protected me from a lot of that. You <clears> know, okay. my mother took us to the library when we were virtually old enough to walk. Some instinct. This is the early 50s. Nothing in her family had said anything about books. This instinctive getting kids to read. So we had the books, the access to the books. She, you know, I tell the story in a music memoir. I was mad about Lonnie Donegan. My sister was mad about Cliff Richard. My mother got somehow to take us to me to Chiswick Empire to see Lonnie Donegan, just me and her. And my sister on a evening standard free matinee thing she got tickets for to go to London Palladium to see Cliff Richard. Things like that. What she could do, she did. And, you know, bear in but mind here, I'm 13, so I spent a, we spent two years in that flat in Pit House till my sister got married. She moved to Watford and wanted me to go with her, semi-detached house that her, she and her husband were buying. I said, I'm not moving to the north, you know. <laughs> so I Says went, the MP for Hull. I went, yeah. <laughs> Former MP I, for Hull. I went back to uh, North Kensington and was living in digs when I was 16. But I was involved in rock and roll. I was going to Marquee Club in Wardour Street, 100 Club. I was going to the Crawdaddy in Richmond to see the Yardbirds. I had no parental um, authority at all over me. I kind of did what I wanted. My mates couldn't believe it, you know. Um, and I mean, I wish I did have a bit of parental authority. I'm not saying, you know, I wish my mum had been, had been there, but yeah, it, that wasn't a hard time through the sixties. I was, I was in two bands and, and the only, I mean, finally, when my gear got nicked a second time, the bass guitarist in the in-between said, why don't you come and work? He was a postman. Why don't you come and work at the post office? Come I on. sort of don't. You take this in the yeah. spirit is meant. I don't believe you. Right. What, right. <laughs> what I don't believe you is the. I just think you're such a sunny personality, and you're keen not to sort of dwell on it. But I, I, I find it hard to believe. Let me put it that way: that, that, that this thing doesn't sort of like that. That this experience is not so profoundly shaping in a way. Yes, that... so maybe it was shaping, Giles. Yeah, but I don't want people to think that. You know, there were kids I knew who were beaten by their parents i was never beaten my father for all his faults never hit me uh he did try to hit my sister once but you know that she was formidable and fought back but <laughs> he never hit me i hear about people you know growing up in the most tragic circumstances big families you know where it's one guy who was a colleague of mine who retired recently was telling me there was six of them in the bed he was the eldest boy and he used to listen as his father beat his mother up. It's quite common, actually. And lived with this guilt that he didn't yeah. get out of bed and defend her. Lived yeah. with it all his life. Yeah, yeah. Now, to me, that you yeah, know, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of... That's, that's how does all this shape... How, how has all this experience shaped your politics? Where does the... Where, what, what's your politics? I mean, did you have... Is it, are you more interested in the Yardbirds at this time than you are in politics? I am, except that, you know, the, if the epiphany came anywhere... And I don't know whether anyone has this epiphany and yeah, wakes yeah. up. I mean, maybe they go to university and decide they're going to join the Conservative Club or the Labour Club. But, <laughs> okay. you know, I didn't have that. I left school at 15 and was working in the supermarket trying to be a rock star. Um, uh, but, but when I was my last year at school, in the fourth year when I was 14, this English teacher came, came into my life called Mr. Carlin. And Mr. Carlin saw that I 
was a voracious reader, but said, have you read C.S. Forrester? Have you read uh, Jeffrey Household? Have you read Charles Dickens? Arnold Bennett was a big, oh, right, he was yeah, a big yeah. fan of Arnold Bennett. He got me yeah. reading all this stuff. Yeah. And he got the whole class of boys, uh, it was a boys' school, reading Animal Farm by George Orwell and explaining the subtext of the Bolshevik Revolution. Now, Orwell you know, was a democratic socialist who spent most of his time not trying to convert people to, to, to the left, but trying to say that to the left there is a different way other than totalitarianism. And, and that explanation to us, a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, going out into a world divided, third of the world lived under communism, if I was going to be kind of dragged from my background, it was to the kind of far left. And there was a lot of attractions in a work. You were never state. a commie. Never a commie. No, people say I was a Marxist. I read Das Kapital. In fact, right. I respect Marx. It is his analysis of what was happening then at a time when, you know, there was no male working class suffrage, no mind women. But would Marx still be thinking that? I mean, it's when people get stuck on that ideological, every word of Das Kapital is kind of the way they live their lives. And Mr. It's like, it's like, by the way, it's like Bible study. When I was a hard lefty, yeah, yeah, and we yeah. used to go through some of those texts with the same sort of focus and... Yeah, and, here's and, what and, Jesus and, said on that. Yeah, I know. It's, it's very and it similar. And it is a bit like that. Yeah, yeah and then you go on the street Testament. corners and you're... Yeah. It's, the same, it's either the lefties or the, or yeah. the God squad that's on the street yeah. corners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that, that is very similar yeah. in terms of sort of fundamentalist yeah. uh, kind of approach yeah. to things. So that little warning, I, I became absolutely obsessed with Orwell and had read practically everything he wrote by the age of, of 20, including things like Road to Wigan Pier, including 1984. And in my mind here, although I was attracted to, to the idea of a worker state and communism, in my mind here was always this idea that, listen, if you take that down this route, it ends up in totalitarianism. We had a Hungarian uh, teacher at school, Mr. Palai, who I'm still in touch with, he's gone back to Hungary now, but he was a socialist, but escaped as the tanks rolled in uh, to Budapest in the Hungarian Revolution and came to be a teacher at our school. Now, between them, Mr. Carlin and Mr. Palai, both on the left, both democratic socialists, kind of planted something there that meant I would not go down that route. Uh, and and the kind of longer I live, so, you know, 68 uh, Czechoslovakia, I started work as a postman. I remember having the conversation. Lots of communists I worked with in the trade union movement Good guys, by the way, and good women. A couple of women in, who were telephonists, union officials. Hammer and sickle tattooed on their chest, you know. And people who I got to know, like Jimmy Early, like Jimmy Reed, who was a great figure for me, was a hero to me in my early 20s, who led the work in on, on Clydeside. But Jimmy left the Communist Party and joined the Labour Party. And most of those communists who I knew, Maurice Stiles was a great figure in the CWU, were kind of regretful. They couldn't quite explain what had happened when the tanks rolled in to Budapest. And then had even more of a struggle explaining when the tanks rolled in to Prague, uh, the Prague Spring. And, and what was that all about? And, you know, s suddenly the, the appeal of communism to young people be, uh, uh, faded. And communism was like it was dying from the neck up. Most of the communists were old. It's kind of changing a bit now. 
But as uh, yeah. Shostakovich, Shostakovich said, the great Russian composer, when he was told that um, Picasso was a communist, he said it's easy to be a communist when you're not living under communism. Of course, Shostakovich, who was on the death list of Stalin in the 30s because of a piece of music he wrote that was said to be counter-revolutionary. I mean, that's kind of when you end up there, you kind of have a warning sign. So your politics, so, so from quite early on, your politics has a sort of like... There's a sort of, there's quite a continuity in in the way you've you've seen things. Yes, I think I think it, there was ex- <laughs> except you know I went through that phase of being I suppose attracted if someone had managed to get to me. Uh, you know, I used to get the news line delivered every Saturday by a school teacher from Kingston on Thames called Richard. He was a lovely guy. Newsline being the newspaper of the Workers' Revolutionary Party. And Richard would come to my council house. You know, I lived the, when I was eighteen. I got married. By the time I was 20, I had three kids living on a big council estate in Slough, the Britwell estate. And Richard would troop out there on wet Saturday mornings to give me my newsline and to try and convert me to to Jerry Healy's mob. Uh, disgraced now, Jerry Healy. But at the time, in the 60s, you're too young to remember this, Giles. That was another bit. Vanessa Redgrave, Corinne Redgrave, you know, it was a very sort of... Uh, uh, de rigueur to be part of that kind of far left workers revolutionary party and Richard would tell me a lovely school teacher gentle guy middle class chap dressed scruffy uh, talk posh whereas I talk scruffy but try to dress posh I was a mod and, <laughs> no, I was and a he, mod. <laughs> he'd try and convince me to put give arms to the council to my fellow council house uh, occupants on the Britwell estate to give them arms uh, to give them guns and I said, Richard, do you know what would happen here? Look at that sign as you come in that says, keep Britwell white. Do you know what would happen if you gave a lot of people guns around here? I know they'd go out and shoot, and it wouldn't be the petty bourgeoisie. And yet, there was no foundation in real life. And this is something I can't stand about the far left. The working class are not individuals. They are a collect, have a collective role in history which means their individuality is kind of su- suppressed and <clears throat> yeah. faded. So when we were on strike, we had a big strike when I was 20 in the post office, seven week all out. We'd go to rallies in London and these kids dressed like playing sacks of spuds would come to us, very posh university kids, and try to use us as kind of cannon fodder in the class war. They weren't talking to us as individuals. They were saying our collect- what our collective role was in piss off was it? exactly right kind of, you I, understand know? That, I understand that i was probably one of them i mean later on but i was <laughs> yeah. like that was me public school boy who'd, you know who'd yeah. like read all the read all that sort of stuff yeah, and yeah. i i believed all of that i believed yeah. it with uh i i, I um I'm interested in you having three kids quite early on. And that that was like, you know, by 20, having three kids. So you've got family life to negotiate after, you know, I talked about role models and not having obvious role models. uh, No, that's true. Uh, My my first wife, um, her mother died before she knew her when she was a year old in childbirth. So she died and what would have been her sister died. Her and her two brothers, another feckless father, buggered off with his girlfriend and left the three of them. Her two brothers went into Dr. Bernardo's. Her grandmother, grandfather and mother, although grandfather died quick soon after, took her in. So she was raised by her grandparents. And in a way, we she was four years older than me, 
and a single mother. We were trying to get into family life when all my mates were trying to get out of family life. There is, I mean, I didn't think of it that way at the time, but I can see now how that was more attractive to us uh, than many of our friends. So, so I was married at 18, unlike my mother, who waited for a council house that never arrived, within a year, because they were pulling down the next place we lived in, just off Labra Grove, for the M40 extension into London. Uh, we got take it or leave it offer. You move to this council house on the Brittle Estate in Slough or you find your own accommodation. Well, yeah, this house on the Brittle Estate, front garden, back garden, indoor toilet, shower, which I'd left behind because the place we lived in in North Kensington didn't have it again. Um, that was a great attraction for me and Judy to raise what was then two kids and then a third kid followed in 71. And... In a sense, I've been kind of raising kids ever since, but but that was a how bit, many kids you got? That, well, four. Uh. Although my my oldest daughter died, but uh, uh. four. So so, and I still say four, isn't that funny? But yeah, I think you do. Anyway, no, no, that's you, right. That's it. right. Um, so we that was a, a great twenty years that we spent on the Britwell Estate raising our kids. And that's when you're postie. My second book, please, Mr. Postman. I'm not plugging my books here. My <laughs> all book. Beatles titles, aren't they? But they are, They're yeah. all Beatles titles. Yeah. But I'm trying to, ex- I'm, in a sense, I felt the need to reclaim the council estate because for some okay. reason now, if you're on, in a council house on a council estate, you're a loser. You know, it started in the 80s. The Thatcher right to buy wasn't some kind of ephemeral issue that, you know, was discussed in Parliament to us. It was real. We got this offer, kind of a terrific offer of a... Which for those in the council house at the time was like sale of the century. And our neighbours took it. And I don't, I'm not pious about it. I can, I can understand. God, suddenly you can have your own house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not bound by the rules that your hedge must be that big and your front door must be painted that yeah, colour. Yeah. You can buy it with a huge, like 60% discount, longer yeah. you'd stayed in the house. Yeah. We didn't, me and Judy, buy it because there was something in our genes about, about our background but I understood why people did, and there's and now suddenly you know if you live on a council. Do you have, estate, do you have a sneaking? Uh, this, uh, uh, do you have a sort of sneaking regard for Thatcher? Um, it's very sneaking, but <laughs> but but it's there. The more I read about those years and understand as a politician, I mean her big mistake wasn't council house sales, although it was ridiculous that councils couldn't use that money to build new yes, council houses. That yeah. was a Labour had thought about that at the fifty nine election. It was almost part of their manifesto, I think, selling council houses. But the money would go into building new council yeah. houses. She specifically for forbade that. A big uh, mistake was of course the poll tax. But leaving all that aside, um, given. What I know about politics, I can understand the conservatives and others looking at her as a strong character. And, you know, people want strong leadership within a democracy. And uh, I suppose in that sense, she provided it. So you go into politics. Um, you get this. I get this call, you know, a few weeks before the general election and yeah. uh, come to Hull. You, you'd never no, been it wasn't of... even that. It was it was a phone call uh, from Tony Blair. I was I, we'd had a big success in the union. I was general secretary by then. I wanted to lead my union and had a lot of help from a guy called Tom Jackson, who was the leader of the union of post office workers. Big handlebar moustache. People recognised him instantly. 
and he was a bit of a mentor for me. So I rose through the ranks of the union. Heseltine and Major tried to privatise the post office in 1992. We fought a very successful campaign against it. The only campaign against privatisation that any union won. They had to back down. It gave me a certain profile. profile. Yeah. I was on the NEC of the Labour Party. Tony rang me up on a mobile phone, one of those huge mobile phones at the time, about some esoteric issue to do with the new by-election. And at the end of the conversation, he said, Alan, I understand you want to be an MP. I said, I don't know where you got that from, Tony. I've never wanted to be a member of parliament, which I hadn't. I was the leader of the fifth biggest affiliated union. Why would I want to go kind of back down to the <laughs> ranks, so to speak? Um, but anyway, the more he, he said, come and see me, and the more he spoke to me, the more it appealed to me. I've always been into these constitutional issues, uh, proportional representation I've supported all my life, reform of the Lords, uh, Scottish devolution, big program of that in Labour's uh, inf uh, freedom of information. All of that stuff attracted me as well as the trade union stuff, minimum wage, all, all that protection of working hours. So I th it looked like we were going to win the next general election. I thought, you know, I'm going to regret this all my life if I lose this opportunity. Because unlike my, co this is why I've had such a charmed life. Many of my colleagues in Parliament sweated cobs to get into Parliament. They moved their families into constituencies where they thought the sitting MP was going to kick the bucket just to be there. Then went round knocking on doors to get branch nominations. You yeah, know yeah, yeah. How the thing works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I had to do was wait by the phone. And I said to Tony, "Where would it be? Where would the constituency be?" When he was talking me into this. He wanted people in Parliament who hadn't spent their whole lives trying to get into Parliament. This was his uh, appeal to me. He said, well, where do you want it to be? Because unbeknown to me, of course, he knew all these MPs were going to retire. And sort of halfway through the 97 general election, which was six weeks long, big one, long one, because Major wanted to try and turn things around. So he wanted as much time as possible. Halfway through, my predecessor in Hull, Western Hessel, uh, retired to spend more time with his peerage. <laughs> They needed someone in there straight away. They couldn't go through the selection process. You're in the middle of a general election. Uh, so the NEC picked the candidate, and uh, it was kind of a done deal that I was going to get in there. Uh, and so, you know, I took my parachute off and found myself in this wonderful constituency. My mother's, one of my mother's 10 siblings was my auntie Dolly, who followed her down to London to work in the naffy two years after my mum had come down and then nicked my mum's boyfriend off of her. My mum's boyfriend was a guy called Les Foster from Hull. My auntie Dolly nicked him, nicked him <laughs> off of her. They didn't speak for 10 years. Uh, oh, tell the story in this boy of us, me and my sister, oh. on a cold train up to Hull <laughs> as part of the peace process. But my auntie Dolly and my uncle Les had nine children and I figured in Hull, I figured I had a inbuilt majority unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately none of them lived in my constituency um but what a, what a place i mean this is where i live i where, where i live now and what i found i mean first of all they were pleased to see me trade union leader and all that it was a very old labor constituency and also uh there was this big issue about trawlermen and the fact that they'd been treated dismally and in fact biggest industrial injustice i'd ever seen 20 years before uh, Hull was the biggest distant water fishing port in the world. Collapsed overnight. Nothing to do with Europe, to do with the resolution of the Cod Wars. British government agreed with Iceland 
to put a 200-mile limit around the coast of Iceland. That was the end of Hull's fishing grounds. But presumably you didn't know much about Hull before you went there. I mean, it was just Philip Larkin or something like that. Larkin, I was always a big, big fan of Larkin. And I used to follow Hull City because my Auntie Dolly lived up there and I was a big football fan. Um, Queens Park Rangers, though, is your... I'm a Queens Park Rangers, yeah, 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 my local team. I tell you what, we'll just brush that under the carpet. Yeah, we'll see. You're a (laughs) Tottenham Hosbury. No, no, please don't say that to me. I'm a big Chelsea fan. Chelsea, I went to school in Chelsea, which yeah, yeah. gave me a, yeah. a. Which I went to school about four hundred yards from Stamford Bridge up the Fulham Road, uh, and it I gave know. me a visceral hatred of Chelsea. Although I, I went know. to see them because QPR were then in the third division, and the only way you could get to see first division and second division football was Doherty's Chelsea. Every time I've been to QPR, I always sit behind one of those bloody pillars that's always awful. in the way. South Africa Road stand, yeah. God dear. Anyway, whatever. We'll remove them for you, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Memo to That says nothing about the football either. Yeah. But these days, everybody's always trying desperately to try and make their connection with... Uh, you had no connection with Hull, really. I mean, apart from this sort of like story about... No, they are these days, but <clears throat> they weren't in the old days. You know, Churchill was the MP for Dundee for 12 years, and he went there twice. <laughs> you know, to, know Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, didn't know oh, in, in the old days, you, the big thing was you don't represent Westminster in your constituency. You represent your constituency in Parliament. And if an MP went to visit their constituency, they expected the station master to be out with his top hat on and a brass band to welcome them, you know? This was, this was like right up until the 70s. MPs had no constituency assistance. Dennis Healy sat in the House of Commons Library and replied to every constituent who wrote to him by hand. Now, that's because you didn't receive many letters from constituents. You weren't part of constituency life. And therefore, there was very little connection. Dennis Healy had no connection with, I think he was born in Yorkshire, but he had no connection with Leeds Central, whatever his constituency was. Harold Wilson was born in Huddersfield, was the MP for Toxteth. In in Hull, John Prescott came from North Wales. Kevin McNamara came from Liverpool. Now, and I think this is healthy, by the way, people are looking for a link with the constituency, although that doesn't always mean you get the best advocate, which is what an MP is. But the really healthy thing is constituency surgeries. You, you, Whatever job you're doing, and when I was in government, my constituents had no idea what cabinet position I was in. Why should they? They didn't follow politics on a daily basis. When they came to my constituency surgery, they wanted to see their MP. In fact, I have had this woman who came into my constituency surgery and said oh, she wanted me to write to the health secretary about this issue. I was the health secretary. She didn't know that. So... <laughs> There is no problem doing that. But but that our system now keeps you grounded. And whilst you get some MPs who are snotty about it, say, oh, we're glorified social workers. I tell you, many, you must have found this as well, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a priest, as a vicar. Many of the people who come to you are desperate. They've got nowhere else to go. And indeed, in Hull, they would come to you as a last resort, almost apologetically, sorry yeah. to trouble you, Mr. Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you kind of thought, who else could solve this? Because there were... Issues with different agencies or the council or the child support agency or the government very often, you know, tax man maybe or benefits, uh, work and pensions. Who else would do that? And do you, did but you find with those MP? surgeries as, a, as an MP, as a backbench MP, let's say you were nodding as a backbench MP, did you have much power to sort things out i mean is it is is it a job you know if people listen to this and they're thinking about going to be in yeah. going go be an mp do you, do you actually have much clout not if you're... power but influence and as i explained to people if you had power you'd 
question the kind of democracy you were living in. So me and Prescott, who was the MP for East Hull, John Prescott, and I was the MP for West Hull, were in the cabinet together. There were more MPs from Hull in the cabinet than <laughs> were from London. There was only one from London, poor <laughs> Tessa Jowell. And constituents would say, and it would be in the whole Daily Mail, you know, two cabinet members and we still haven't sorted the Holderness Road problem out. Two cabinet members and we still haven't. As if, when you're a cabinet member, you say to your civil servants, now, Hull is now your top priority. You have to give resources to Hull. Yeah, I mean, our system actually forbids that. So on Trawlerman's compensation, which we eventually won, I wasn't allowed as a minister to go anywhere near it. Our system excludes that kind of corruption but strangely the British public who will understand that they don't want to see the kind of system where a politician just you know says you know I want my I want I want my own self-grandizement is about what I'm about uh, but still expect because you're in cabinet that you can do so actually it doesn't matter whether you're in cabinet or not if you're a backbench MP when you're in the surgery you're a backbench MP not a minister what, what, and and can you do you can influence things you haven't got the power to say, I will sort that out for you. But a letter from a member of parliament, raising a question on the floor of the House of Commons, putting down an EDM, having an adjournment debate, all of these tools that MPs are well used to are hugely important. I mean, if you have a debate on the floor of the House of Commons about an issue to do with uh, you know, uh, disability in your constituency or adult social care or the closure of a child's mental health uh, inpatient unit, as I did, well, suddenly everyone sees it, you know, and the whole... Uh, it, it, uh, so it, and looking that makes back a splash. Over, so you, you left politics last a year before 2017, last. 2017, yeah. yeah. Before last. And uh, so looking back over your, your political career, what are the things that you're most proud of? Trawlerman's compensation. It's, it's, it's constituency things more than ministerial things. Right. And there are ministerial things. I'm, I mean, I started the process of lifting the education leaving age to 18 because I couldn't understand why a 16 or a 17-year-old were expected, you know, falling into this um, trap where they couldn't get jobs because they didn't have qualifications and they couldn't get qualifications because they didn't have the experience in a job. So lifting the education leaving age was very important to me. There was something we did at the NHS, which was a very small thing, but was very important to me. The NHS used to, if someone was in a serious condition, usually, usually, you know, uh, uh, terminal, usually cancer or heart problems. And there was a drug that the NHS didn't offer, but somehow they managed to buy it. And these weren't particularly rich, but these were people who remortgaged their house or their families sold their house to find the money. The NHS withdrew all care for them. Now, when I heard about this, I questioned my civil service. They said, well, it's always been the way, ever since the NHS was created. I said, but why? I mean, it seems to be the opposite of what the NHS is about. And they said, if you remove that, you'll have all kinds of unintended consequences. Even the opposition... <laughs> That's very brave, Minister. My opposition... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, Minister stuff. Even Andrew Lansley, my, opposition, my opponent uh, on the front bench, wouldn't take this up. And I got a really good clinician called Mike Richards to have a look at this. I said, Mike, just have a look and come back to me. And he said, just do it, just do it. And I did it. And, you know, the, the sky, didn't, the sky fall didn't fall in. in. And a lot of people who was being told, although they were terminally ill, sorry, your family have bought that drug. We now will not allow you to have any care on the NHS. I mean, ridiculous. And what are the, what are, what are the black marks? You know, what would you say were oh, the black marks against the Iraq? No, uh, 
I wasn't in the cabinet then and I didn't have any ministerial responsibility, but I was an MP. And never forget, that was the only conflict we've ever gone into by dent of a parliamentary debate. It had always been by royal proclamation previously. So I remember the Iraq debate. My good friend and mentor was Robin Cook, took a different view to me, resigned from cabinet, made a pulsating speech. I remember it. Yeah. But never went off into all this nonsense about Blair being a liar. In fact, he went out the next general election, which we won, to talk to the Muslim community about why they should continue to back Labour under Tony Blair. So I don't hold with this stuff. I mean, we could be on this all day. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I cover it in, 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 my, in The Long and Winding Road, third volume of my memoirs, as to, you know, that Hansard debate from that debate at the time. And it's OK looking back in hindsight and all the rest of it. But at that time, I say you get 650 people of all different political persuasions, put them in a chamber to debate the issue and hear the arguments. Weapons inspectors, uh, once again, for the 12th time, told you cannot have unfettered access. Resolution 1447, all of that. Uh, and and that would be the outcome. That would be the decision. And it wasn't about weapons of mass destruction. Everyone knew he had them. He used them on the Marsh Arabs and he'd used them on the Iraqi Kurds. Everyone knew he had them. Is whether he'd got rid of them. And Resolution 1447 has said if he doesn't comply by Jan- by December the 31st, 2012, uh, and allow weapons inspectors full unfettered access, serious consequences will follow. And he, and he had spent 12 years running rings around the United Nations, ignoring resolution, Article 7 resolutions, the serious ones, resolution after resolution. And in a sense, this was about upholding the United Nations decisions on this. There wasn't a new UN resolution, much so Tony Blair tried to get it. Um, so no, if, so if that's the not, same circumstances. So what would be? So what would be? What would be your regrets? What would be on, the black mark on the government in general? We didn't do enough on housing. We did an awful lot on restoring council housing, which by and large had, didn't have double glazing, didn't have central heating. And we spent a lot on bringing them up to a decent standard, and we built a lot of council houses. Contrary to, but we didn't build enough. So that that quite definitely was an issue. In terms of the financial crash, that's another hindsight issues issue. You know, if you listen to Vince Cable, who did see that coming, to be fair to him. But in government, you know, what we were doing to deregulate financial services, but to have a very clear watchdog over them. But what we were doing was bringing billions into this country that we use for the national minimum wage, for the education maintenance allowance, for all the other things we we introduced. Um, so all of that was... It's but, dodgy, but, isn't it? I mean, this is... But if we'd had a seeing that bubble gradually blowing, and of course it, it was America where it burst, not here, but I think governments all around the world have thought we should have seen that coming and we should have done something about it. Now, that doesn't mean to say that that caused the austerity that followed. The austerity followed was manufactured in Downing Street by Cameron and Osborne. If you read Alistair Darling's budget before we got voted out of office, he was going to spend £20 on infrastructure, you know, borrowing money while the rates were low to get people working, get us out of... We were already out of recession. And... And so our policy wasn't a policy of austerity. It was quite the opposite. So nonetheless, yeah. the left looks very, the Labour Party looks very different now to the Labour Party you're describing here. Corbyn and uh, 
momentum and so forth. Yeah. Are these, you know, I don't suspect you have much truck with any of this. No, you only have to read, read my <laughs> quotes. It's, but it's not about policy. The policy issues, by and large, although spending £11 billion on relieving students of making any contribution to their higher education strikes me as amazing when you could spend that £11 billion to unfreeze benefits, the same amount of money for the poorest. I mean, that's been the big problem. No, benefits have not increased. They've been frozen since 2010. They're still frozen now. Every year there was a political agreement, cross-party, that they would go up in accordance with whatever it was, uh, the different rates were used, and there'd be a debate on the House of Commons and everyone would agree it. It's been frozen. And it would take $11 billion to bring them up to the stat level they were before. And if you want to spend it on education, you spend it on early years, or you spend it on primary, or you spend it on secondary. You wouldn't spend it on bloody higher education. That and a few other things aside... The, you know, privatisation of railways, that would have happened under any leadership now because it's absolutely the right time. We, we nationalised rail track, but we didn't go that step further. But from on the eastern line, where where I go to Hull, that is uh, publicly owned. Uh, so so it's, not, it's not a policy issue. The trade union issues are all right and good and proper. It's, it's this idea that you can lead by this kind of clique that is that is not looking for converts, it's looking for traitors all the time. I mean, anyone like me who served in the Blair government is now persona non grata amongst this clique that's running the Labour Party. And, you know, I find uh, I find all that just reminiscent of Militant, except Militant never captured the castle. And every other attempt previously, and this is the last thing I say on this because I bore myself yes, about, yes, yes. Uh, about this. You know, this is not a return to Atlee Attlee was plagued by this. The Keep Left group, which was the Corbyn campaign group of the time, a minority, people like Ian Mercado, etc. As soon as Attlee took over, they were trying to remove him. They, their criticism of Attlee, they weren't saying Attlee was great for creating the NHS and, uh, and nationalising the railways and the mines and creating the welfare state. Their criticism was, yeah, you created the NHS, but you still got pay beds. Yes, you nationalised the railways and the mines, but you didn't nationalise the commanding heights of the economy. Yes, you introduced the welfare state, but pensions should have been whatever. This is what the far left have always done. Ask for the impossible and then cry traitor and betrayal when you don't achieve it. We know this in the trade union. We've grown up with it in the trade union. We deal with it. I mean, we had dialogue with these people, but they were always a minority and we always made sure by and large they they're weren't, not, they they're weren't not a minor, running the they, show they're not they, they run the show they've now. captured the castle and that that's depressing frankly. and you but, but your your um commitment to labor is is remains as i mean you're tribally labor and well, no, uh, not, i'm not tribally labor no i'm not tribally labor i am labor because i believe in the eradication of poverty and greater equality everything else in a sense are means towards those ends <clears throat> and it's still the labor party that can provide that but look you know when we start deselecting mps and deselecting members incidentally <laughs> which we started to do now you know that's when it's all going to get really really nasty but i'm i've stayed with labor unlike most of the people i know uh in the european elections i voted labor you know i wanted i want labor to do well not least of all because the most appalling government that have been there since 2010 the Tories and are getting away with what they've done because of a lack of a You weren't tempted opposition. by the Alistair Campbell voting Lib Dem option I wasn't no and and but 
that's really because you were voting on a list system. And, you know, the top of the list in Yorkshire and Humber was an old mate of mine, Richard Corbett, who I wanted to get back into into Brussels for the short time probably that we'll be there. You're a, you're a Remainer. I'm a Remainer who thinks we should agree that deal. That deal, I think... What May's deal. Our, yeah. It's May's deal. It's 27 members of the European Union deal. It's the only deal in town. No... Uh, no dilution of workers' rights. Uh, we're out of the common agricultural policy. If that was your beef, we're out of the common fisheries policy. If that was your beef, we're out of the rule of the European Court. If that was your beef, but we stay within the customs union and we keep a very close relationship. It's a very soft Brexit. The big mistake by my colleagues was thinking that they could actually get rid of Brexit altogether, ignore that referendum decision, which I think would be outrageous. And, of course, the big risk they were running was that we end up with no deal at all if you vote against the only deal that was there. I've got a feeling that deal came back, Parliament would vote for it. But I've been saying since the first time it went to a vote in December, it was going to go for a vote, then she pulled it until January, that actually we weren't going to get a better deal. Uh, So that's my position. That is the best step down and maybe... Five, ten years, we step back You're not back a second referendum, mate. It's just... I'm not, no. I mean, I mean the problem That's here. been done. Yeah, and it's caused all that division. It's Cameron's folly having that referendum. And it's caused these terrible splits in our society. How you resolve that by having another one, what, you get 52, 48 the other way, and that's going to solve anything? I, you know, I've had enough of referendums. I want to see Parliament resolve the issue. And I want to see him resolve it with our friends in Europe who have conceded a lot to get that deal. I mean, we actually stay in the customs union without free movement, which people said couldn't be done. That's in that deal, albeit for two years. But in that two years, you can get a Norway option, all the other common market 2.0, the other things that attract me. You could negotiate that during those two years. As I expected, you you have this sort of wonderful, open, pragmatic, common sense approach, but a drive to... You talk about poverty and equality, which is sort of like, you know, you break you open and they're there through like a stick of But that's Labour. That's the traditional Labour that I come from and the the trade union movement that I come from that founded the Labour Party and was very clear about ensuring that it didn't become a class-based party. And class-based politics strike me as, you know, dead-end politics. Identity politics? Well, that's becoming more and more a thing. But, you know, how could... I don't berate you for your public school education or Cameron and Osborne. They had as much control over their childhood as I had over mine. And, you know, if you want to decry people for being public school boys, then you decry Clem Attlee and, you know, exactly. great Hale Labour Bree. figures. Went to yeah, Tony Bree. Ben, etc. <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. Jeremy Corbyn for a while at his prep school. So, no, that's dead end. You have to treat human beings on their humanity on what they are you know this idea never kissed a Tory or whoever it was that is rubbish Laura Pidcock I I think that's really rather never talked to a Tory but that's tribalism gone mad was why I kind of pushed back at you when you said I was tribal Labour you know if you didn't talk to the, the other side of the table when you were a trade unionist if you didn't understand what the employer was where they're coming from and what they wanted you wouldn't concede it but you'd certainly know where they were so you could do a deal strike a deal with them so yeah i abhor that i mean if you didn't talk to a tory you wouldn't talk to kind of half the population you know <laughs> you or, 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 you or you'd have a, a chat on a train you say look before i have a chat with you about this <laughs> you just tell me how you voted so uh, one of the things people say about you is that you know you'd have made a great prime minister 
And uh, a lot of people say that. I think I think that too. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll be careful, never, be careful you, what you uh, do. You, what you do you have regrets, my friend? No, none whatsoever. I didn't want to be leader of the party. I no. certainly didn't want to be prime minister. No. And it's nice that people say that, but you know, there's a long list of people far in advance of me. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you for coming. Thanks, on. Charles. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Confessions.